he winds up losing his fortune from all the money that he makes but he's like the work's already done like i'm in the popular conscious more famous than ever before it just teases at the motivations of power yeah because these guys are immortal they have effectively superpowers they have infinite access to things because of their long lifespan and so what else would they want I actually feel like when the story talks about power, power structures and how it corrupts, that's when the story is most interesting to me. It's sort of least interesting to me when there's just these big battle sequences. I think it's probably impossible for any work to bear up over the ages. Goldilocks certainly bared up. Oh, wow. That was good. time is it is it time to grind <laughs> no ryan it's not time to grind it's time for the holiday cheer that can only come from sharing fables and folk tales with our friends and family <laughs> there's no cheer left in the world robin just grinding grinding for a paycheck that's never quite enough well have i got the perfect gift for you is it a holiday bonus <laughs> from our sponsors <laughs> what sponsors <laughs> no ryan Despite the looming economic uncertainty that everyone is talking about, I have something better for you. I have a magical modern story about literary legends come to life. Oh, like that hit ABC TV show, Once Upon a Time. Is it defunct now? Is that still going on? I don't know. (sighs) Don't mention that show. Okay, well, I can see our ratings drop as we speak. But what ratings? (laughs) (laughs) What listeners? (laughs) I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes whose podcast, Once Upon a Time, lived in a fairy tale, but now has settled for the mundane world. Our podcast never lived in a fairy tale. It started during the quarantine, so it was the complete opposite of living in a fairy tale. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> this week, Ryan's Christmas present to me is letting us reread the entire run of Fables by Bill Willingham. Whoa, Roman. I didn't sign up for that. It says here that Fables is nearly 160 issues across 20 graphic novels. I would do anything for love, man, but I won't do that. But yet, I did. <laughs> no, you didn't. Well, oh, I didn't. Week... You're right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, not, not I, even for love. Not even for love. All you need is love, Ryan. All you need is love. This week, Ryan's Christmas present to me is letting us reread the entire first 11 volumes of Fables by Bill Willingham. But in the interest of time, let's do it over two episodes because I am feeling both generous and also under the gun. Let's spread it out. <laughs> There's a very special piece of coal for your stocking, Ryan. Uh, whatever. I mean, I could probably... Uh, coal's valuable, right? I could probably sell that. <laughs> as long as it's clean coal. So... Fables by Bill Willingham isn't just an award-winning comic. It's one of those comics that has won almost more Eisner Awards than any other comic, and the Eisner is comics' top honor. Fables tells a modern-day story of the legends of folk and fairy tales living in our modern, mundane, or mundy world. 
We're talking Snow White, The Big Bad Wolf, Rose Red, Prince Charming, Cinderella, Jack of Beanstalk and Giant Slaying fame, Goldilocks, The Three Little Pigs, The Three Blind Mice, Santa Claus, Beauty and the Beast, Pinocchio, and many, many, many more. And while Fables definitely sounds like some weird shit, and don't worry, it is, Fables combines the narratives of many characters from popular literary legends and smooshes them into a, a multiversal tale with stakes and consequences, unlike a lot of modern superhero comics. And while we won't be reading the entire run of Fables, we want to revisit the initial run, which sets up almost all the major characters living in exile from their countless homelands after a mysterious villain only known as the Adversary appeared with an unstoppable army and began conquering Fables' worlds one after another. Hundreds of our years ago, the main fables of our story came up with a desperate plan to hide in the world that the Adversary would never even want, a world so boring and utterly mundane that magic doesn't even exist there. New York City, specifically the Upper West Side. <laughs> Ryan's neighbors. So Fables finds itself mostly set in the oft-overlooked and soon-to-be-gentrified neighborhood known only as Fable Town, but the book spans the centuries and worlds to weave quite a long tale. While the first couple of volumes get off to quite a slow start world-building and setting up some of the main characters, I'd encourage you to slog through them because it soon starts to speed up the stakes and the drama for a really, really entertaining romp. Ryan, I actually accidentally discovered this book years ago at the recommendation from my uh, local comic book shop. I abandoned it because I couldn't get into it, but then I rediscovered the entire run at my local library only to get completely hooked. How'd you discover Fables? And more importantly, how'd you find it? Yes, it's probably the same way. It was really popular. People were writing about it and I just picked it up. I think after a lot of the trade paperbacks had already been published. Fables, I think, is actually just a real masterpiece of world building. There's actually a really internal logic to this world of all of these fables, how they living together, how they exist together, how their personalities just completely clash with each other <laughs> and the weird form of government and even the economy that they have and how it runs and how and everything, and, everything has an explanation. Yeah. Like you, there's no room to suspend your disbelief because there's an explanation for and, everything. And, and how and even how things are enforced, right? Some of yeah. the sort of the, the dirty things that they have to do in order to make sure that they don't get discovered either by the Mundies, which is what they call regular people, or by the adversaries forces. And I really am impressed how a lot of this is delivered in a way that doesn't feel like exposition. They don't really spend a lot of time just info dumping on you about how this world works. A lot of the adventures are integrated into the world building. It's, you learn about the world as as the drama unfolds. And so I, I really think it's it's sort of like just a masterpiece of putting all of these strange pieces together and creating this world out of out of nothing. I was reading a review earlier about the entire run of fables and something I didn't realize that Bill Willingham got his start as something like writing for Dungeons and Dragons or doing something official with Dungeons and Dragons, which leads me to believe like mm. he has this talent. That's what dungeon masters apparently have to do. And to your point, the story, I, I it actually when when they are accomplishing plot stuff, it's great. But even better are these short two to three issue arcs that pop in and out that are planting the seeds for something that's going to pay out later. Jack does something and gets something from the Grim Reaper. Bigby does something back in World War II because he was fighting with the Allies, etc. And I, even though I don't really remember everything that happened through the entire plot, a lot of these things are going to come back and have payback later. 
Yeah, actually, it's interesting you bring up the Dungeons and Dragons thing because I can see that, right? You're you're taking familiar fables and fairy tales, just like when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you take maybe familiar aspects of tropes, fantasy worlds, yeah, tropes, yeah. archetypes, and then you try to recombine them in storylines that are unique and interesting. And that's what he's doing here. He's taking these familiar tropes and archetypes from the fairy tale and fable worlds and fictional worlds and recombining them into sort of a new stories and a new meta narrative that sort of drives everything. Well, and he's contextualizing them in the actual fairy tales. It's hard to relate to those don't feel like real people, but these do feel like real people. How would Prince Charming, let's just use him. This doesn't spoil much. Like it's the same Prince Charming from every fairy tale. Right. And he's a womanizer. <laughs> and there's like this one beginning of some issue in the maybe like volume four or five or six where his three ex-wives, Snow White, Cinderella and Briar Rose are all like having lunch, like talking about what a shithead he is. He takes the basic aspect of of a lot of these characters and then he expands on it, which another good example, I think, is Beauty and the Beast, right? When she Mm -hmm. falls in love with him, he turns into a human and they use this as sort of a dramatic device occasionally when they start to quarrel as couples do. A married couple? Yeah. (laughs) Over a a couple that's been married for centuries and probably sick of each other at some point. When her affection for him starts to die, he starts to revert back into the beast. And sometimes when she's sort of ambivalent to him, he's sort of like halfway beast, halfway (laughs) not. And that's, and and so he's taking those, the basic concept of these fairy tales. And even though these characters are just, they're archetypes when they appear in the fables, he takes takes their sort of baseline characteristic, their one characteristic, and he just runs with it. And and sometimes it takes you to some surprising areas where you start to see the character evolve, like Prince Charming. He's actually, when you meet him, he's a womanizer. He's just sleeping around. He just wants money. And then he runs for mayor of Fable Town. And he, he kind and, of but, realizes... And, and it, it, it's a power grab, though, to be clear. It's, it is, is yeah. It's a power grab or a popular grab, but it's also because he thinks only he can solve it. Right, and he does, but unlike Trump, he's earnest in his efforts to make Fable Town work. And you actually have a couple of issues. Initially, the power structure in Fable Town is King Cole is the mayor, Snow White Santa is Claus. His, Santa Claus, yeah. Yes, and the Snow White is his... Is his Deputy. King Cole, King Cole isn't, isn't, isn't Santa Claus, is he? Yeah, he is, yeah. Old King Cole was a merry old soul, and a merry old soul was he. He called for his crown, and he called for it. That is a nursery rhyme. Pretty sure it's Santa Claus, but I'm going to double check. <laughs> I, I always read him as Santa Claus. I mean, what though? You, I can't see a world where King Cole and Santa Claus are the same character, just like the big bad wolf that blew down the three piggies' houses and the big bad wolf that ate red, Little Red Riding Hood's Well, that, that is one thing William does. He smooshes characters together. Right? Yeah. Now, you might not be wrong. I might be wrong here that I thought King Cole was Santa Claus. I genuinely thought it was Santa Claus. He's dressed like Santa Claus. He's dressed like Santa Claus. I don't. I mean, it could it could be like, well, he could be like a variant. I could see him being like maybe a variant of Santa Claus, right? I mean, they're visually, he's pretty, they look pretty similar. But I, I, huh. I don't think he's Santa Claus. Well, w- one thing worth noting and getting this right off the bat, this this book is about the fairy tales of old. But it is not a kid's book. Like, this is like, not quite NC-17. This is rated R. It's like, and I didn't say this at the beginning. This was published through DC's now defunct Vertigo line, known for things like V V for Vendetta, Watchmen, Why the Last Man. And this was the hot Vertigo series for years. And it reads more like an HBO series. And I never watched the ABC ripoff of the show, Once Upon a Time. But that was like an ABC show, a network TV show that probably had some edge. 
but it's uh some of the things some of the tactics these people use some of the trysts that are involved it's it's very rated R. It's very M for mature. Yeah, there's there's a lot of beheadings. There's a lot of murder. There's a lot of political inspired murder as well. There's a lot of regime change that's incredibly mm-hmm. bloody. Like Big B Wolf, this Big Bad Wolf. He's the guy who does like a lot of dirty work behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Um, and actually, like, do you remember how he funds it? He has a goose that lays the golden yeah. eggs. Where it's sort of like it's bringing. It's not just that he's a secret source of funds. The secret source of funds is is basically another nursery tale another fable so and that's one thing i really like about fables is that even the mundane aspects of running the economy of fable town there's some it, it, like harkens back to another fable or the mythology of another fable comes into play in order to explain how the economy works and that's i think that's re- it's just really really smart yeah and, and not to diminish the work that bill willingham did but i couldn't help when reading it the first time to find almost like these character proxies for for the people that I was reading about. And the, the one that was the most obvious for me was Bigby is pretty much Wolverine, but a more detective nor Wolverine. I mean, even down to the he's lived forever. He's fought in so many wars. The power sets effectively the same. You could maybe argue Wolverine's effectively a werewolf, but it's um. and again, you can look similar too. The, he's the, yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. That was actually one thing that's when I when I read it when that it really struck me that he actually did a physical resemblance to Wolverine, not just the the power that he has where he turns into a wolf. Well, even the longing for and and they explain the longing for Snow White as something completely different. I uh, the first time I read it, I actually didn't read the prose at the back of the first volume, and I'm glad I went back and read it because it helped when Bigby and Snow White are absconced, entranced to do other stuff, but like the explanation and everything that happens after that, the conversation, but it's Snow White's Jean Grey. And I'm not saying Snow White is Jean Grey, but it's like the nice girl. He's a ruffian Han Solo Wolverine thing. And it's, that's the same Wolverine Jean Grey thing. So there's a lot of things like that, that play out. And I could never quite put my finger on, Oh, who is Jack a proxy for? Oh, who is Prince Charming a proxy for? But the characters all felt familiar enough. Having read a lot of comics, these aren't superheroes. There's magic and there are superpowers involved, but because it was taking something and turning it on its head, it it fell in the superhero genre for me, but it wasn't, right? Because there's this bigger, grander master plan. It's not just costume people running around, but it is like a secret society. It's closer to the X-Men with magic, maybe. Yeah, I mean, they're, I mean in a way, there are a bunch of misfits trying to hide out, right? And yeah. there's there's still that element of they need it like when Big B and Snow White have their litter, literally it's a litter of wolf babies. Um, <laughs> they have to learn that how can to fly. Control. That can that fly. can fly, right? They have, but there's this whole thing with uh they need to learn how to control their powers. They need to learn how to revert to their human form or to their wolf form. Mm-hmm. And maybe the little wind baby needs to learn how to not not murder people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert no spoiler. but it, it's funny with that it's like okay what if these two characters got together it's almost like extended fanfic right so he's taking these existing stories that we all know and love what be it spider-man harry potter whatever but he's taking the fables of old and doing what he wants with them he's turning these things into action figures and really playing it out and, and yeah. seeing where it goes I, I do we talked about this also earlier it does take a while for it to get going the first, I, I actually, when I first read it, I almost stopped reading it after yeah. the first volume because the first volume Same. is not very 
good. It's it's sort of <laughs> yeah, well cuz it's it's this it's this mystery that introduces and through that mystery who killed You meet everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who killed Rose Red? That's the mystery. And then that's the vehicle by which you meet everybody. But it's also a mystery that doesn't really all of the other drama from then on out really delivers on the, the mega plot. Yeah, right? I mean it it's it feels relevant to there's always some sort of um yeah, it, it, it feels relevant. And I think the first volume, the mystery in the first volume is sort of like a sisterly spat. Essentially, it's mm. these two dummies who concoct the stupid plot. And then at the end, you're like, mm. okay, it doesn't really, it, it's really inconsequential. Whereas everything else that happens afterwards including is, at the farm. is really, is, the yeah, farm. including at the farm is really consequential. And that's, and that's also when you start diving into everything, right? Once the second volume, you see the farm, where the fables who can't look human, who aren't human, or who don't look human, where they have to live, including the giants, all the talking animals, and dragons, you know, and how do they feel about it? How do they feel about having to be like enchanted and put to sleep because they're too big to hide? How do they or feel second about class citizens, right? Yeah. Pretty much imprisoned on this farm upstate, right? And then, of course, you have that that re- rebellion. You have the introduction of Goldilocks and. The bestiality. There's bestiality there. Sorry, she's she's sleeping with with the little baby bear. bear. <laughs> He's yeah. just right. He's just right. Yeah, and then and then and then I, I think after that the storyline gets much more propulsive, and then it, it becomes much more interesting to read. And I think especially when the adversary's forces start creeping into Fable Town in the fourth volume, where that's where you have the Pinocchio lookalike dolls coming mm-hmm. in and trying to strong arm people there. That's I, got, I gotta ask. Battle. I I mean I don't want to ruin it for people, but I, I guess I'll ask the question this way, Ryan. Did you see it coming, like who the adversary was? No, not the first time. I mean, yeah. the second time you read it, it's so yeah. obvious. You're, well, you're, but you're yeah, you're seeing he's clearly like laying the groundwork. I for think it. You're, you're, I mean, look, we're gonna be talking about this one in the next. No, I I kind of don't want to. You want to see if we can do it? We gonna you want to see if we can hide it with? We can talk about this without revealing who it is. I don't think we have to cover too much of it, but it's, and it actually, what's, what did I, you think? Yeah. You know, what, just, what did you think? What was your reaction the first time you realized who it was? Well, well, so one thing when we were trying to split out, when's the right time to like cut this in half for these two episodes, we picked the exact right place to yeah. stop it because at the very end of volume six, which we're covering up to this episode, there's the big reveal of who the adversary is. And it's a really slow, slow burn, slow reveal. And once the real the real happens, they take their time with it and walk you through how this happened. They they do the, the consummate world building. Um, it's really disturbing so, also, like what happens. Yeah. The adversary is the way the adversary is and what motivates this individual. Um, yeah. I, so I didn't see it the first time around. To your point, it would seem like almost too obvious. And if, it, if that almost reveals everything. But it's a good payoff. It's not some surprise reveal. Oh, here's another thing we're throwing out. You... You were literally building to this. And even when you get to the explanation of why, the explanation makes sense. So it's clear that this was a very thought through methodical thing. And uh, I will say that knew it all along. some of the things that the adversary does in order to to execute the plan is mm-hmm. real. There's, there's a reveal of another character that's close to the adversary and how the relationship between that character and the adversary Let's just say it devolves. I think what I'm talking about, that one was that I remember. I still remember that panel being like, oh, man, what the fuck did you do to this person? 
Yeah. I all I'd say is it's the other thing is the book doesn't choose to zip line straight to the plot. You know, like no. I think there's like volume three and four, it meanders into other stuff. World War Two, Jack spending time in Hollywood. By the way, World War Two, you do have Wolfman versus Frankenstein, which that's, I that's literally the title of the issue. It's great. <laughs> But so one of the other things, and we didn't say this, like, okay, so how do the fables maintain their power? They're not quite immortal, but they're long lived. But it's, and I don't know if you pulled this from something else, but it's the more popular the fable is, the greater its power. So well, if people, but actually one thing I noticed, there's, there, they question that the witch from, yeah, in the jacket. The, yep. she, yeah, the witch from Hansel and Gretel is sort of like saying, I don't know, that's the theory, but I don't know if that's true or not. And you can see that. Obviously, there's a scene where Snow White gets shot in the head by Goldilocks, and she recovers in part of, and they attribute that to her her popularity. In fact, um, and later on in another issue, they're like, "If you have a Disney movie made about you, you're fucking immortal. You got it made." Yeah, and but later on, Snow White is in a car that's going out of control off of a cliff, mm-hmm. and one of the issues with that, of course, is that you start thinking, "Well, is that actually gonna gonna affect mm-hmm. you?" Because like it does lower the stakes for certain of the fables. If you get shot in the head and you're like, okay, afterwards, car accident isn't chief among your concerns. But I haven't read fables all the way through. Willingham definitely leaves some wiggle room to get around mm-hmm. that and to explain why some characters die, others don't. Some die with more difficulty than others. I would like him to sort of interrogate a little bit. Like what actually happens when a fable dies for real? And maybe that's Mm -hmm. something that he does later on, because if you're going to introduce this question of mortality and how mortality is linked to your longevity and popularity as a fable, what happens when the fable actually dies? What happens to the fable in the public conscience? It's just one of those existential questions or philosophical Mm -hmm. questions I was just wondering about. Like something be it's something that I think it's like maybe a little bit of a hole in the world building, not a big Mm -hmm. one, but something I was like, huh? Well, the the reason I brought this up was literally just to talk about the diversion they did with Jack going to Hollywood. Right. So Jack of Jack and the Beanstalk. And he basically steals a bunch of money from Fabletown and sets himself up as this anonymous movie producer, a Kevin Feige of types. And he makes like a trilogy blockbuster superhero movies about Jack, the Jack trilogy. And he winds up losing his fortune from all the money that he makes because Fabletown comes down hard on him. But he's like, the work's already done. Like I'm in the popular conscious. Like the Jack trilogy has made me more famous than ever before. And I just thought, and again, even then they're like, we're not sure if that works, but it just teases at the motivations of power. Yeah. Because these guys are immortal. They have effectively superpowers. They have impotent access to things because of their long lifespan. And so what else would they want? I actually feel like when the story talks about power, power structures and how it corrupts, that's when the story is most interesting to me. It's sort of least interesting to me when there's just these big battle sequences. Um, I'm, I, even like the Prince, Char- Prince Charming's election to the adversary's lust for power. And even the thing with Bluebeard in the earlier volumes, I actually think Bluebeard would have been a great antagonist and they they, they killed him a little bit too is he, early. Uh, and, and what's funny is like they set him up as an antagonist and... He's effectively there, just how do they get their money? Like, how do they get access to their capital? But there's a handful of these fables, like Bluebeard, Blue Boy, or whatever, Flycatcher. I'd never heard of these fables. Oh, before. you've heard of Flycatcher? The Princess and the Frog? Hey, if you kiss me, Princess, oh, okay. I'm going to turn into it. That's Flycatcher. And then uh, Boy it. Blue, it's another Mother Goose fable. Little Boy Blue 
go blow your horn. I'm not saying it right. I, something like that. Um, <laughs> and then Bluebeard. Oh, Bluebeard. Roman, you're missing out on Bluebeard. He's the serial killer fairy tale. You know, it's funny. It's like I was listening. There's a there's a comic book podcast that Crooked Media does. And every once in a while, one of their co-hosts, he's a comic book writer. And he's actually one in the writer's room on She-Hulk and the, the TV show. And when they brought him back to be like, what was it like in the writer's room? He's like, I was a resident comic geek who could like pull all these obscure characters because the She-Hulk show does that. And I feel like Willingham, as he goes further along, some of it's according to this master plan. But it's like, who's a fairy tale I could pull in to make sense for this plot device? He's very well versed on all of the fucking random ass fairy tales. And he starts peppering them in and, and giving them the right use that makes sense for their folklore. So that's the thing with Bluebeard, though, because I think that's what's left unexplored. The guy's a serial killer. He murdered all yeah. his wives, right? And he yeah. was, and he did it in the most brutal way. And I know, you know, when you go to Fable Town, there's amnesty, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason so many of these guys get to Fable Town is because of Bluebeard's wealth. Bluebeard is also mm-hmm. funding Fable Town. So there's this very strange dynamic where they know he's a serial killer. Is And I think that there's a lot more that they could have done with that. Like just the tension between Bluebeard and the rest of the community, how they're kind of subservient to him, but also he's a freaking serial killer. But then again, he has amnesty, but then again, he's also a serial killer. I mean, there could have been a whole thing with no, I mean, once a serial killer, what do you just shut off that impulse? I mean, if you make a habit of killing your wives, it's not like you're just going to be like, Hey man, yeah, it's all good. I'm going to just chill now. And I know Rose Red, she was supposed to get married to him in the first volume. Obviously, she didn't want that. But there could have been this whole other element of them playing with fire. And then when Prince Charming essentially assassinates him and they get his wealth and everyone's like, yeah, that's cool. There there definitely could have been some interior. I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, there's this. The book is, uh, Fables is most interesting to me when they interrogate the ascension, the rise, the grasping for power. And I feel like in that instant, they just let it slide. So there was like a lot of dramatic possibility with Bluebeard that I feel Bill Willingham neglected. He could have been a much more propulsive character. And I actually think he could have probably been a bit more of an antagonist. And then the adversary could have stepped in. And he was, I guess, an antagonist, but he never really was the antagonist. And I felt that he could have had a bigger role, especially given how fearsome of a character he is in the fairy tales. Well, I think volume one, it was Willingham had this master idea and had fleshed out some of the things he wanted to do because it's clear how he's setting up these characters against each other, Snow and Big B, etc. But I don't think it was fully thought out. and. It's very clear by the time you get to volume two, you're laying the groundwork of what are we going to do about the adversary? There's people who have opposing points of view on the right thing to do, the calls that our society has made. So I don't think and and this is volume one, like season one of Seinfeld, always bring it back to Seinfeld or of any TV show. It just it wanted to kind of lay out the concept, but it didn't know what it was doing. And even I noticed a couple of things that become much, much more consistent in later volumes all the way through to the end is even the artwork. Right. The mm. And I'm not even just talking about like the the stylization of the characters. There becomes a more consistent 
flow of the artwork that's much more appealing, probably by volume two, three, four, that carries its way through. And I, I, it's funny, one thing I genuinely remember about Fables that was absent from the first volumes is the like almost like medieval storybook ornateness that was around the pages. It's hard to describe, but like the framing of the panels and the framing of the pages, he, he starts to experiment with it in like volume three or four, the artists do, but it isn't a real thing. And it, it makes it feel more like a fairy tale. Actually, so the last volume we read, volume six, which is where Boy Blue goes off on his quest to confront the adversary. I thought that was some of the most visually stunning work that Mark Buckingham becomes sort of like the main artist after. And he's really tearing it up visually. I thought that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, did you read like the the adversary's original identity, who who the adversary was supposed to be? I did not. Please Peter Pan. Well, now we've just spoiled that it's not Peter Pan. Well, Peter Pan doesn't show. So Peter Pan doesn't show up because I read he he couldn't he couldn't get the rights from the J.M. Barry estate or would have been a copyright issue if he included Peter Pan in Fables. But yeah, that's the whole thing about Peter Pan stealing the kids. Peter Pan was the original adversary. Which would have been a much interesting, more well, not a much different book because it's such a different motivation from right. the current adversary. I'm glad that uh, Willingham chose the eventually settled on the person that he did settle on. But I'm very curious, like in an alternate world, if we could read the Peter Pan version of Fables, where and, and why Peter Pan is doing what he's doing. Well, I'm sure there's a there's a fanfic out there, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there I'm sure there is Dark Pan. <laughs> not to be confused with pan's labyrinth which i still haven't seen oh good one i like i like pan's labyrinth this is just such a fun read i'm glad we finally got back to it i am genuinely looking forward to the next oh boy here we go no 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 i was saying yeah yeah, yeah. no it's, it's just stuff <laughs> it's, let's uh, go let's no, we're like so, overdue here so let's I, go, no man. i i so I, I mean i it's a it's a fun book and i remember i absolutely loved it i mean i saw it from the first volume when i read it the first time probably in my i don't know early 20s i'm just curious did, did things change for you after now that you're reading it in your in your 40s there were certain things that felt a little bit dated to me um and i was just wondering if you had sort of the same reaction to some of the decisions that were made i i think something with this podcast is sometimes i've gotten much better at like letting go and just enjoying the ride there have been a handful of books that we've read on this pod that were like some of my like goats greatest of all times like kingdom come that uh didn't hold up as well and even through interrogation with you they don't hold up as well, and that's kind of why I hate you because sometimes you poke a hole in my nostalgia. Oh, sorry, I don't mean so to. So I'm do curious that. to see how you're gonna, what you're gonna do. That's not. Uh, okay, no, but on. but but it was, it was. If anything, because of the world building, I I was catching more this time around because you already know the broad plot points, so you're paying attention to the details and the delivery. So if anything, I'm getting more enjoyment the second time around. Many years later, it's not something that I would like really detracted um, from my enjoyment of the overall book but there are things that i notice that feel like products of like the pre me too era or yes. that's what i'm talking about like the fact that jack sides with the confederates and then later on when he's protecting pinocchio he's wearing the confederate hat yep. you, you think okay you know nowadays if you were to do that you'd need to address that a little bit 
that's one example. I think the other example would be the way Big B like tries to hit on Snow White when they're working together. And it's just, I think, portrayed as just sort of like a charming thing and he'll eventually get his way. But she definitely isn't interested in him initially. And, you know, even after they have kids, when they're entranced, right, they have sex because they're entranced, her reaction to it, it, it's, it definitely tends to, I think, it, it's really biased, I think, more towards Bigby. Like, oh, it's okay, I'll win you over over time. It's like, man, you just impregnated her with like six kids and she wasn't really prepared for that. I think that she might have some opinions. So that's that's something that I, I think also kind of... But ironically, on the flip side of it, when Snow finds out that she's pregnant and with the doctor and the doctor gives her the modern choice to make... Even Snow's response. Now, was that was that written through the lens of William's point of view? I don't know. But it's, it's, I heard someone else in an interview say, we can't judge past works through the lens of today's attitudes and opinions. Because what was, I mean, what was normalized back then? Does that make it better? Does it make it worse? I. It's not a judgment. It's just notice. I mean, you can't help not noticing these things. Right. Yes. And I also don't like that as a blanket statement because then you're like, well, Birth of a Nation was a great movie. Well, yeah, but it's also fucking racist and they glorified the Ku Klux Klan. Like, can you really you have to judge by modern standards sometimes? I mean, you, you really have to, I think, take each work of art individually. And I'm not saying these are such fundamental issues that will really keep you from enjoying fables. But it's things that for me, at least I was reading through it. I'm like, oh, okay interesting and then i moved on and that's why i'm bringing up here to shatter your enjoyment of it roman no just kidding (laughs) it's just something that i thought was worth addressing rather than ignoring here's what i'd say there are absolutely cringeworthy moments that happen that through our modern sensibilities you see it's funny i'm in the middle of a rewatch of the show 30 rock and while it still holds up there's absolutely some things are like oh I don't know right. if that would pass muster today. So yeah, that's fine. Yeah, sure. you're not you're I not judge you're not judging it. You're but it, you're you're also and you're, not, and you're not even and you're not even canceling yeah. it. You're not canceling it, but it's I think it's it is worth addressing, and um, I I think it's probably impossible for any work to bear up o- over the ages. So there's always going to be something that feels yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's what makes them immortal. Go- Goldilocks certainly bared up. Oh wow, that was good. <laughs> so ryan i mean i know we're only six of 10 or 11 volumes in but i gotta ask would you recommend fables to someone yeah it's a fun adventure it's just i think a masterpiece of world building and it's a great diversion and at its best bill willingham really takes what's fundamental to these fables to their personalities and then he really runs with it he sets them against each other he sees where their personalities go. He deepens their personalities. And then he also applies all of the fable narratives into, into this working economy, which I'm making it sound <laughs> boring, but that's what I mean when I say it's a masterpiece of, of world building. It's the way he takes all of these elements and fits them in like a puzzle into this world that feels real and lived in and battled. Absolutely, absolutely. I, uh... I'm guessing you would too. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, when we started this podcast, I, I literally have a stack of friends that I would have loved to bring a st- on. A stack of this. friends? Like Bluebeard has a stack of, of wives? I hope not. This is 
It's just such a fun, long read. And we've chose to read the main adversary arc, so 10 or 11 of the 20 or so volumes, but it keeps delivering. It's, it's not cyclical. It doesn't become repetitive. Like, the characters have journeys that they go on, and they have real histories that they live in the modern era, and there's consequences to their actions. And I think that's just refreshing, because I don't want to say there's a beginning, middle, and end, but this doesn't have to go on forever. Right. In fact, it doesn't. It ends at 20 volumes. And is it the best finale? I actually don't remember. And I think when we're done with this, we're only getting through about half of the run. My goal over the holidays is to take the other half of the run with me and finish it. So, yeah, I'd absolutely recommend this. If if you're looking for a nice, good, long read that lasts 20 volumes and it's pretty rewarding, slog through the first couple volumes for sure. But then get ready because because it's a really fun and wild, like rewarding ride. I like that you're going to run with the run on vaca- on vacation. <laughs> so ryan i have another question for you oh what question is that it's the one question we'll probably get right this time around yeah i think so what are we reading next week we're reading the yeah. next i think six volumes of fables and that's going to be the adversary arc where that concludes so the first six volumes the ones that we reviewed it set up the world set up the adversary revealed the adversary in the next six volumes, it's going to come to its natural conclusion. Shit's going to get real. Shit's going to get real. But not too real because they're fables. Living in a mundane world. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Jones. Some piggy wicks for the big, bad, very big, very bad wolf. They didn't give three fixes. Number one, that's a and he built his house with hay. With the hay, hay, too, he blew his flute and he played around all day. Number two was fond of jigs, so he built his house with twigs. Hey, did a diddle, he played on his fiddle and danced with Lady Bigs. Number three said nicks on tricks I will build my house with bricks And I had no chance to sing and dance Cause work and play don't mix Ha 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 The two little doodle pigs just winked and laughed Ha ha Who's afraid of the big bad wolf The big bad wolf The big bad wolf Who's afraid of the big bad wolf Faded frown, and the wolf blew into town with a gruff puff puff. He puffed just enough, and the hay house fell right down. Oh. One and two were scared to death of the big bed wolf's breath. By the hair of a chin chin, I blow in, and the twig house answered, Yes! No one less but number three to save the piglet family. When they knocked, he fast unlocked and said, Come in with me. Now they're always safe inside. And the bricks heard with his pride, so he slipped down the chimney, and oh, by Jimmy, in the fire, he was fried. Who's 
afraid of the big bad wolves, the big 